Well, good morning, everyone. As we continue to worship through the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, our text this morning is likely familiar uh, to many of you in this room, especially during um, this Advent season, and, and rightly so, because of the, the themes that are proclaimed um, just in this short seven verses, such as joy and peace and an everlasting kingdom, and most of all, the birth of the Lord Jesus. And there were many texts that we could have looked at this morning um, related to those themes, as, as Brian talked about during Sunday school, in Matthew 1, and in Luke 1, and Luke 2, and all throughout Isaiah back in chapter 7, and later, even Isaiah 53, when it talks about the suffering servant. But I landed on Isaiah 9. And as I began to study this text, I discovered that there's more, if you will, relevance to it for us in this very moment than just being in Advent season. Because what I discovered is that as we look into the historical situation in which Isaiah writes, is that there are in some ways remarkable parallels with the situation that we find ourselves in right now. You see, Judah is living in a period of time where they're being invaded by foreign oppressors and every aspect of their lives seems to be negatively affected by that. They're under the judgment of God. You could say when it rains, it pours. Everything that has gone wrong is going wrong for them. And I think for us, whether it's due to COVID-19 or a contentious political season, social unrest, economic downturn, a combination of these things. Uh, I think as, as Cody so powerfully summarized um, in the prayer this morning, the whole world seems to be asking this question, where's hope? Is there any hope at all? And honestly, the only hope that the world can give really at best is a false hope. Maybe in the turn of the new year, as though when, when the calendar turns, then maybe as a shot in the dark, things will be different. 
Or at best, you simply throw up your hands and, and say that there's no hope at all. But for those of us who are believers, right, we don't think about these things. We don't mourn as though we have no hope. Right? And what we need to be reminded from of Isaiah 9 is the truth that he speaks to Judah in their situation. And it's this central idea, which will serve as our main idea this morning. Hope for the people of God is in the Messiah. And we're going to unpack that main idea um, in three points. First being the coming of the Messiah in verses 1 through 3. The victory of the Messiah in verses 4 and 5. And the kingdom of the Messiah in verses 6 and 7. Now, as Christians who live on this side of the cross, who possess the fullest revelation of Scripture, we recognize that this Messiah that's promised all throughout the book of Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament in general is none other than our Lord Jesus. Right? See, this Hebrew word Messiah is Greek equivalent is the word Christ. And no, I don't think any other text in the New Testament confirms this more definitively than John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. It says this, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Point number one, the coming of the Messiah, beginning in verse one. Isaiah starts by saying, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And we don't really capture the, the magnitude of what he's saying here unless we understand what has already been said by him in previous chapters. And so let's just start at the very beginning of the book. Isaiah chapter 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so for these first five chapters, for the most part, it's all bad news. It is all judgment. But even in the midst of that judgment, there are various points and various kind of inserts of gospel hope. Right? Even in verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So for these first five chapters, there's this back and forth between judgment and hope. And it kind of serves as a prologue for the rest of the book. And so for our purposes in chapter 9, we really start in chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord. He sees him on his throne, high and lifted up. The seraphim are there. They have six wings. They cover his face and two cover his feet. And with two he flew. Right? So he sees God in his veiled holiness. And these seraphim are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations begin to shake the, the ground on which he's standing. And Isaiah, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim, they fly down, and they touch his tongue with a burning coal and tell him that it has touched his lips and his sin is atoned for. 
And then beginning in verse 8, the Lord gives Isaiah a commission. He gives him a message to take to King Ahaz at this time. And we've gotten to that point where Ahaz, son of Jotham, is king. And at this time, Israel is a divided kingdom. We saw this um, during Sunday school where you have Pekah. He rules Israel in the northern kingdom, which retains the name of Israel, um, 10 of those tribes. And then you have Judah to the south. And Ahaz is the king of those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Those two tribes are held out according to the promise that God makes to David that the throne will never leave his house. Now, at this time, the most powerful nation in this area of the world at the time is Assyria, and they're over here to the east, right? But they're beginning to encroach on all of these territories where Israel and to the south, Judah, exist. And so as, as this empire starts to expand to the west, Syria, who's kind of in between Israel and Judah, and Israel, they begin to get nervous, right? So um, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, they form an alliance. And so they say, we're, we're going to come together, and we're going to oppose this Assyrian invasion. And so they appeal to Ahaz and ask him to join them. But Ahaz rejects it. He refuses. He, he will not allow Judah um, to join with Israel and Syria. And so Syria and Israel decide to invade Judah themselves. Right? And their plan is to overthrow Ahaz and put in a new king named Tabeel. And he's not in the line of David. And so right here we see the plan that Syria and Israel has to overthrow Judah and form an alliance so they can oppose Assyria is not going to work according to the promise of God because he has told Judah that the throne will never leave their house. And this is exactly what Isaiah comes to Ahaz and tells him. He tells him, trust in the promise of God, stand firm in the faith, because Israel and Syria will not be successful. But of course, Ahaz, rather than trusting in that promise, he goes and appeals to Assyria and their king, Tiglath-Pileser. So what he does is he goes to him and he says, if you take care of our Syria and Israel problem, then we'll serve you. And so in 2 Kings 16, we see that Assyria and Tiglath-Pileser, they, um, they take that deal, right? And they make short work of Israel and Syria. And so Ahaz honors that deal. And he comes to him and he brings him gold and silver. And when he meets um, the Assyrian king in Damascus, what he finds is this really, really attractive idol that Syria has and this altar on which they sacrifice to it. And so he decides, I want one of those. And so he gets Uriah, uh, the priest, to build one that is an exact replica and replaces the altar to the Lord um, that is in the entrance of the temple. And so Isaiah comes back to Ahaz and he hands down the judgment of God against him, not only because he did not trust the promises of God and appealed to Assyria instead, he was also introducing idolatry into the worship of Judah. And so he hands down this judgment starting in verse 18. And before that, what he tells him is that, yes, Syria and Israel, they oppressed you to some extent, but because you appealed to Assyria rather than trusting in me, 
the one who you ran to will become an even greater oppressor than they were. And so in verse 18, going all the way through um, 25, he hands down this horrible judgment. It says this, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is higher beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head of the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. And in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be thousand vines with a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, man will come there and for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle let loose and sheep tread. And then just kind of to top off this judgment, we see the result of that in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. It says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and speak contemptuously against uh, their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness so this is the situation in which Isaiah begins to speak to them by saying but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish now based on everything that he has just said surely the people of Judah would be made of questions at that point. How on earth can Isaiah say this, given the situation that they're in? Well, he continues. In the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, in, in this first verse, there, there are a bunch of names, but all of these names refer to the same place. And so you have the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are two tribes that are a part of the northern kingdom. And these tribes inhabited the northernmost part of that northern kingdom. So they lived basically on the border. And, and it earned all sorts of names, such as the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, the reason it's called the Galilee of the nations is because they're on the border. When nations would come and invade or simply those who try to escape other nations, that's the first place they would go. So even though it was technically a part of Israel, it was inhabited actually primarily by Gentiles. But the greater point here when it talks about Galilee of the nations is that because they're on that northernmost border, when they're invaded, right, if an army begins to invade a nation, right, and they're going to move all the way down through the nation, when they have the most soldiers, and they have the most supplies, the place that they go to first is going to get hit the hardest. So Zebulun and Naphtali was the land that was known for experiencing the worst darkness and the worst judgment any time, under God's judgment, a foreign nation invaded them. So it says that in the former time, referring to God, he brought forth, and in the latter time he is made glorious. And so in reference to, to this area of the northern kingdom, what's happening here is although these were the people who were the 
first to experience the judgment of God um, when they sinned against him. They would now be the first to experience the glory in which God is going to give them. And what is that glory? Well, we see that in Matthew 4, where Jesus fulfills this prophecy. In Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17, it says this, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So in verse 2, he starts talking about the people who walked in darkness and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. Now these people, their entire life is characterized by their sin, by their darkness, by the judgment of God upon them. It's in Isaiah 9, 2. It says they're walking in darkness, Matthew 4. They're dwelling in darkness. In Luke 1, they're sitting in darkness. Everything about them is in opposition to God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. These people are characterized by complete and total darkness. And even more than that, in Matthew 4, it says they dwell in the shadow of death. Because of their sin, the shadow of death looms over them, and that is their intended end. There is no way out for them. Now, Isaiah 8, verse 21, um, we, we get a glimpse into the depth of that depravity because they're under the judgment of God and, and their land is not producing anything. Right? They're distressed and hungry, and when they're hungry, they'll get angry, but then they'll speak contemptuously about the God they have sinned against and the reason they're under judgment in the first place. They blame God for their own sin. But note, the use of the past tense in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, they are no longer in that state of affairs because they have seen a great light. And that light is none other than the Lord Jesus himself who has come. In John 8, 12, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that is the experience that these people have had. But let me ask this. What has caused them to see the light and walk according to that light? Is it something innate in them that caused them to see the light of the gospel and to see Christ for who he is and see themselves for who they are and turn from them and refuse the darkness on their own? Are they, they some sort of, of Gnostic who had this secret knowledge that not everyone else had as if they're some elite group? Because we know that although the light has come, not everyone sees. Not everyone turns. Right? John 3, 19 and 20 tells us this. Um, speaking of Jesus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So why are these people different? And I think we find that in the latter part of the second verse. On them has light shone. Initially, they've seen a great light. It's active on their part. But that's not the cause. 
The cause is in the second part of the verse. On them a light has shone. It has come from outside of themselves. They did not cause themselves to see. Something has happened to them that has come from outside of themselves that has caused them to see the light and to come to the light and then walk in it. Everything that is prophesied in Isaiah 9 from beginning to end is the work of God, not the work of man. In verse 1, he has made glorious. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. Verse 3, you have increased its joy. Verse 4, you have broken. And then finally in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And John 3.21 picks up on that same theme when it contrasts with those in 3.19 and 20. It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And in verse 3, we see the result of this work of God. It says, you have multiplied the nation. If you go back into chapter 8, looking at verses 16 and 17, Isaiah speaks to the remnant, the faithful remnant in Judah. Now, this is an exceedingly small group. Right? He says about them, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents of Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. But the faithful remnant at this point in verse 3 is no longer a small group that you have multiplied the nation. It's here where we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 22, that his descendants will be more than the uh, grains of sand. And also, he has increased their joy. He has multiplied the nation. He has increased its joy. There's no greater joy than that of the joy that is derived from salvation. And so he identifies that type of joy by describing it as, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, I think we need to understand something about the harvest and the spoil. Right? These are material things, but these are not the sources of joy in and of themselves. They are not joyful because they had a great harvest. or They're not joyful because they went to war, they defeated someone, and then they were able to take all their stuff. And so during the Advent season, we have these themes of joy and peace and goodwill. And even the world has picked up on these. Right? You'll see these things in various places. But it's either materialistic or it's self-serving. It's been entirely redefined and divorced from the birth of Jesus and the righteousness of God. But the reason that the harvest and the spoil are sources of joy is because they represent something. So in a harvest, right, when, you, when you plant your crops and you actually do um, reap a great harvest, that's from God. That is a gift from God who has made your plants grow, who has caused the sun to shine on them, who has caused um, all that you have done to be fruitful. And in war, it's the preservation of God in war, where you've gone to war with this nation and you've fought against them. God has protected you. God has given them into your hand. And so the spoil represents what God has done, not what you get out of it. So a good example of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 30, 
where David defeats the Amalekites. And it says, and when he'd taken him down, behold, they were spread across the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And when they brought this stuff back, what happened was is there had been several of the, of the men who had gone with David to fight, but then there was a large group who had stayed back and essentially guarded their camp. And when they got back, some of the wicked men who had gone to war with David basically said, well, they shouldn't get anything because they didn't go out there and fight like I did. And so David rebukes them in verse 23 and says, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. So the joy and the examples of the joy that it gives right, is not about the thing in and of itself, but what God has given them, what God has done for them. And if we tie that back to verse 2, it's the joy that is produced from God's salvific work in us. I mean, think about all that God has done to bring about our redemption. We know that from eternity past, God has placed his electing love on us, right? not because of anything that we've done, but to the praise of his glorious grace. He has given us as a gift to his son. His son has come. He's lived an obedient life we couldn't live. He died in our place, rose for our justification. He's interceding for us at this very moment. And at the right time of God's decree, the Holy Spirit has come and taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh so that we obey the gospel and respond to it, to the praise of his glory alone. These truths, we cannot help but to rejoice in these things. Right, a good example is in John 10, 28 of how God has protected us salvifically. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Evangelist Justin Peters gives an excellent illustration of this passage. He says it's as though Christ is holding us in his hand and as if that were not enough, and it is. The Father wraps his hand around the Son and duly protects us for eternity. Point two, the victory of the Messiah. Take a look at verse four. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot in the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so the, the first thing that we would think here when it talks about a yoke and a burden, staffs, oppressors, we're thinking Assyria, right? Because they're the ones, by the judgment of God, who are oppressing Judah at this very moment. But since the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is in Christ, and he doesn't come for another 700 years after this, how does he remove Assyria as an oppressor? I think one of the things that we have to remember here is that Assyrian oppression is not their foundational problem. The only reason that Assyria is even there is because they're under the judgment of God, 
for rejecting his promises and appealing to them for assistance instead. They're an instrument of judgment against their sin. So their greatest problem in verse 4 is not the Assyrians. Their greatest problem is their sin, their faithlessness, and their idolatry. Now note the, the language that Isaiah used to describe this oppression. Yoke, burden, shoulder, oppressor. For an ancient Jew, these are things that would immediately recall their mind to their slavery in Egypt. Right? These are the, the words that were used to describe that. Matter of fact, the word oppressor here is the same word that you'll find in Exodus um, chapter 6, verse 5, when it talks about the Egyptian taskmasters. And this is common all throughout the Old Testament. The, the language of salvation is couched in their slavery in Egypt and the central salvific event in the Old Testament, which is the Exodus through Moses. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this language in the New Testament when he refers to us as being slaves to sin. That same language of slavery in Romans 6. And so that exodus from Egypt, that was the central act of salvation in the Old Testament, and it prefigured the ultimate act of salvation in Christ. So how is it that Jesus wins this victory against the greatest oppressor, sin? Verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 4, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so this, this calls us back to Judges chapter 7, where he refers to, to the victory that Israel obtained against Midian. Now, at this point, Midian is a gigantic army. And so when they are oppressing Israel, they're scared to death. Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, which you can't actually do. You have to have wind for that. And so the angel comes to Gideon, and he tells him, you're going to go to war against Midian. And so he's, he's a little apprehensive at first and, and takes God through a few tests, but eventually he comes around. And so when he gathers up his army, he has 32,000 people. That's a fairly substantial army. It, it could stand a chance against Midian. But God tells him, that's too many. So what I want you to do is tell everybody who wants to go home, go home. And so 22,000 of them leave. So now he's down to 10,000. And God tells him, that's still too many. So what I want you to do is take them down this river and tell them to start drinking. And if they just put their face down and start lapping it up like a dog, send them home. If they crouch down, cup it with their hand and drink like that where they can still be aware, keep them. So now he's down to 300. So he goes from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 against this huge army in Midian. And on top of that, this is what they go to war with. This is what they're armed with. Some torches and some jars and some horns. That's all I got in order to defeat this huge army. But the reason the Lord tells them to do these things is that I do not want you to believe that your victory came from the hand of man. And so they surround Midian in three groups, and they shout when Gideon tells them to. They blow their horns. They break their jars and reveal their torches. And God causes every single one of the Midians to be confused and to kill each other. So Israel doesn't do anything in order to obtain this victory. This victory is obtained by the power of God and the power of God 
alone. And so how is, is that type of victory that comes from the power of God manifested in the victory that the Messiah has over the oppressors of his people? I think we find the answer to that in 1 Corinthians 6.14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The way in which the power of God is manifested in delivering us from our sin is in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Point three, the kingdom of the Messiah. He goes on to say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it's in this statement that we see the pinnacle of the glory of God as it is revealed in this passage. Notice in 9.1, Christ begins his ministry in Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Right? It is a place that almost all Jews look down upon. It's the reason that the Pharisees in John 7.52 search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. It's the reason when Jesus comes earlier in John and Nathanael is told about him, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? God takes the place that is the darkest, that is the most looked down upon, that is the most despised. And that is the first place in which he shines the light of the gospel in the Lord Jesus. In verses 4 and 5, he's victorious over the oppressor of his people through the most unexpected of means. If we go back to verse 5, when it says, For every boot in the, of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. These are normal um, tools of war, right? You know, the boots that, that stomp across the land that they're invading. And when it talks about garments rolled in blood, what these soldiers would do is that when they were done with battle, they wouldn't leave and go somewhere else and then come back, right? So once the battle was over and the night came, they simply just laid down where they are with the bodies and blood and everything. And so... You know, it, it indicates a, a violent victory, a victory obtained through violent means. But this is not how God obtains his victory. Christ obtains his victory in his humiliation by going to death and then rising from the dead on the third day. And in 9.6, we see kind of this crescendo build all the way up to this point. You, throughout this passage, right, we're going from gloom to glory, right? In, in these places where people have dwelt in darkness, have seen a great light, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, you're going to break the rod of the oppressor, you're not going to use human means to do it, it's going to be the power of God. Who is it that's going to do this? And you get to, chapter, and you get to verse 6, a child. He's revealed as the most unexpected of people. But this is the normative way in which God operates. Paul tells us that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And it becomes foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it is the power of God. I think John Piper in his book, A Peculiar Glory, summarizes um, this reality wonderfully. He says, the heart of God's glory, as he reveals it in the scriptures, is in the way his majesty is expressed through meekness. Jonathan Edwards summed it up in a great sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. He drew attention to Revelation 5, 5, and 6, where Christ appears as the lion of the tribe of Judah 
and as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A lion is admirable for its ferocious strength and imperial, uh, imperial appearance. A lamb is admirable for its meekness and servant-like provision of wool for our clothing. But even more admirable is the union of seeming opposites, a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. What makes Christ glorious is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 6, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now here we have a clear promise of a king. But for Judah, that's not necessarily good news in and of itself. As Brian talked about earlier in Sunday school, you know, Judah, since the, the dividing of the kingdom, they've had about 10 to 20 kings, almost all of them bad. And arguably at this point, Ahaz is the worst of the bunch. Right? We're told in 2 Kings 16, uh, verses 2 and 3, that he did not walk in the ways of his father, David, but he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and worshiping um, the idol Molech. But, you know, we're told um, in, in the very next part of the verse that this king, this prophesied Messiah is not going to be like that. He's not going to be like those other kings. And we're, we're given an insight into his character in the next uh, four couplets. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, with these four names, we could spend an enormous amount of time just unpacking each one of these names individually. There's just so much richness um, in those eight words. But for our purposes this morning, I'd like for us to consider them as a unit and what they communicate to us about the nature of this Messiah when you take them together. And so the, these first three names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, these are all exclusive to God. Words such as wonderful, God, everlasting, for Isaiah to apply that to anyone other than God himself, he would be blaspheming God, he would be heretical. There's, there's no chance that Isaiah is referring to anyone other than God himself. And yet, this final word is the exact opposite, prince. Now, that word is used exclusively for human leaders in the Old Testament. So what conclusion do we draw from this when we take these together as a unit? The coming child king is both divine and human. If we go back to Isaiah 7, chapter, or verse 14, Right, what are we told? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we're told means God with us. This is who this child king is. He is God who has come in flesh to redeem his people. And the importance of that doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, cannot be overstated. If you lose the incarnation, every bit of the hope that has been offered in these seven verses, it disappears because it centers on this person, this child king who is God in the flesh. B.B. Warfield, in his book, The Personal Work of Christ, he summarizes it uh, very well in this way. No two natures, no incarnation, no incarnation, no Christianity. 
That's it. So Isaiah goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so what we're told here is that the nature of the king, the kingdom, right, is that it is going to be eternal. So we need to understand that this is exclusive to the kingdom of God. That was true of all of the kingdoms in the Old Testament. The Amalekites are no longer around. The Babylonians, um, you know, the Hittites, uh, you know, the Assyrians, any of these kingdoms, they rose and they fall. And the same will be true of the kingdoms who exist now, including the United States. And so if we put our hope in horses and in chariots, as the psalmist tells us, our hope will be shattered when the nation falls. It may not be in our lifetime, but it will. But we set our hope on the Lord, whose kingdom is eternal. But how do we know that? How do we know that this kingdom is going to exist forever. Well, we're told on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. God is going to fulfill his promise to King David. This is not true of any other throne. This is not true of any other kingdom. Only the kingdom of Christ reigns forever. And we're told a little bit about the character of this throne, the character of this kingdom. So he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. These terms that are used to describe I'm the kingdom of God here, peace, justice, righteousness, these are terms that you seem to hear a lot these days. But the tragic reality is these terms are separated from the one who defines them, right? the Lord Jesus himself and his kingdom. Understand, if you're not in Christ, this is not good news. God's justice, his righteousness, his peace, they're bad news for you because you're not at peace with God. And his justice and his righteousness demands that his eternal wrath be poured out on you um, now and forevermore. But there is good news. And that good news is found in verse 1 when we go back to Jesus, the light who has come into the darkness, into the Galilee of the Gentiles, right, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is your only hope of justice and peace and righteousness in the way that you need it. And then you will become a citizen of the kingdom. Will you, will you experience these blessings as you reign with Christ now and forevermore? John Calvin summarizes um, this need well in his Institutes of, the, uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, Here the prophet intimates that the only way in which believers can enjoy true peace is by obtaining the remission of their sins. Hence, Christ is called the Prince of Peace. If the method is asked, we must come to the sacrifice by which God is satisfied solely by the removal of sin in which endured his anger. In short, peace must be sought Nowhere but in the agonies of Christ our Redeemer. And so all of this, all the way through verse 6, sounds incredible, especially in the situation that these people find themselves in. Certainly, uh, it would cause them to hope and cause them to rejoice. 
But on what basis can they trust any of this? It sounds great, but how do they know? Where is their confidence in these things coming to pass? Final line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice that he speaks in the future tense here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But if we go back in verses 1 through 4, what we'll recognize is that the prophet starts to speak in the past tense. And what he's doing there is something that that the prophets often did. They would speak of future events in the past tense with a confidence that these things will come true. That that was the expression of their confidence uh, in the word of God. And I think Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, um, expresses to us why the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God says this, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. There is our guarantee of the hope that we have in the Messiah and his coming and his victory and in his kingdom. And so no matter in this world what may arise, as citizens of the kingdom, we can live in this world with confidence in that Messiah who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. I listen to this encouragement from John Calvin as it relates to how we um, are encouraged by these names and character traits of God. Whenever any distrust arises and all means of escape are taken away from us, whenever, in short, it appears to us that everything is in ruinous condition, let us call to our remembrance that Christ is called wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of assisting us and because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we need counsel, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us for various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distresses. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests, and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that it is easy for him to quickly allay all our uneasy feelings. Thus, with all these titles, confirm us more and more in the faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and against hell itself. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we praise you for the hope that we have in the coming victory and kingdom of Jesus Christ. We confess that at times we've set our hope on other things, other people. God, you have promised if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that we have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. May we set our hope in him to the glory of your name. Amen. May I invite you to stand and let's sing together.
of the one who we've heard preach this morning, that Christ is ours forevermore. days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with Him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid my every failing, I am His forevermore. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. that flows from heaven 